The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. In honor of God's word, our passage today is John 12, verses 9 through 19. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John. Thank you, guys. I'm always amazed uh, when I come here and sing. Phoebe and I don't always talk about which song she's going to pick, and by don't always, rarely. And yet the spirit was totally moving this morning because that song, Lord, I Need You, is like the entire thrust of the passage. So thank you, Phoebe, and totally the spirit was moving in this way. I want you to think this morning as we begin of the last time that you were truly desperate for something. I need you to hold this in your mind. When was the last time you were truly desperate for something? Now I'm going to qualify this because students, I don't mean... Like that time when you said, Mom and Dad, I have to have this because everyone else has it. That's not desperate. I'm not meaning that moment when you anxiously searched for Taylor Swift tickets and they were instantaneously gone and everyone's like, what am I going to do? I'm not even talking about the last time you were truly hangry on a trip and you had to have that salty and sweet snack and you're like, I'm going to kill somebody if I don't eat. Those are terrible things, I know. We, we want those things. I mean truly desperate. I'm referencing those moments when we are at the end of ourselves, that there's a hopeless sense that a situation that's so bad is impossible to deal with. One description of desperateness was tired in despair, having little hope of success. The words surrounding this are despairing and hopeless and, and hopeless and, and anguishing, distressed, even, and I don't want to... Um, necessarily triggering me here, but suicidal. At the end of yourself, I don't know how I'm going to continue. In some respects, we in the Western world have made it our job to make sure that none of us reach that point. Maybe some of you, when I ask that question of truly at the end of yourselves, despairing, that, that you are um, just desperate for something, you might say, I, I've never had that. I've always had food on my table. I've always had a roof over my head. 
I've never been to the end of myself. Just this week, I saw a video on social media of people lining up outside of a grocery store. And the lady that's in the front of the line is literally being pressed into the window because wherever it was in the world, they were so desperate for food that she had to crawl herself in to the, as, as soon as the door cracked and they were running for the aisles. I've never had that type of desperateness. You see, in the Western world, we have remedies for all of those things that we so truly need. I mean, running water is something that I pray all of us have. But if you don't have water, that's a desperate situation. There's electricity, there's heaters, there's AC, there's processed food, there's distribution centers. I'm even thinking of Amazon. Amazon is a remedy to our desperateness. If we need anything right now, you can pull out that phone that's in your pocket and order it. And it could be here at times, even by the time you get home from church. But then there's the desperateness of needing to be entertained. Well, we have that covered too. There's Netflix, there's TikTok. All of those areas in our life that we need covered it seems that we have covered. It's interesting. I was reading this article in the Atlantic a couple weeks ago. And it was talking about how people, though they have all of their needs met, are more despairing, are more anxious, are more depressed than ever in life. We've had all of this stuff thrust towards us of this is what is going to meet your needs. And yet, if people are honest with themselves, they have to say, I am more despairing and, de- and depressed today than what we were a generation ago. And it's because even while we can try to offer remedies, offer solutions to all of our depression, all of those desperate realities, we can never get past this one fact that we were never designed to be self-sufficient. We were never designed to be self-sufficient. You know the other way to word that? We were designed to be desperate for something. We were designed to live in need. Safety and peace doesn't come through making ourselves independent. It comes from us directing our desperateness towards the one who can truly satisfy. This brings us to our text today as we're looking at John 12, 9 through 19. This, these people that we're going to look at, desperateness is at their core. Desperateness is in the air. There is one group of people that are desperate for Jesus to shut up and go away. And their solution for that is we're going to kill them. But we're going to see on the opposite side, there's people who are desperate for Jesus to come and to offer them what they've been longing for. And they're going to cry, Hosanna, as we're going to get to. But what's interesting is that What's different about them isn't their desperateness. What's interesting is what's different about them is what they do with that desperateness. Because one people and one group realizes how much they're in need, realizes that they're not self-sufficient and doubles down even more so. And the other group realizes their insufficiency in life and looks outside of themselves. Here's what's interesting. We've seen so much in the gospel of John. We've seen so many signs, so many tests, so many miracles, so many events. And yet John warned us about this in his prologue. Think back to the prologue. How did this 
gospel begin? It says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him, not anything was made that was made. In him was the life and the life was the light of men. How does verse five continue? The light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Think for a minute of what light does. It reveals, it illuminates our surroundings. Christ came into this world to reveal to us who we truly are and what we need. He shows us this light of Christ, how far off we are from God. He shows us how desperate we are for him. But what does the darkness do? In the ESV, it says, has not overcome it, but we said all the way back at the beginning of this gospel when we started, the better way to translate that does not recognize it. The light shines in darkness and the darkness does not recognize that the light that you're looking for, the satisfaction that you're looking for, the hope that you're looking for is found in Christ. The light comes in and reveals how desperate they are. But instead of saying, you're right, I need you, they say, I don't like that. Let me try to shut that out. On today's text, we see a great example in comparison how people respond to the light when they realize how desperate they are, when how they respond to it in different ways. This first section, just to add a little bit of structure to our time, this first section there, we're gonna see uh, how people respond to Christ in one of two ways, because there are only one of two ways to respond to Christ. There is no middle road. The first way is when you realize how desperate you are, you reject him. The second way is when you realize how desperate you are, you're devoted to him. We start this morning by seeing this rejection. I mean, this, this text 9 through 11 back in John 12 says this, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom was raised from the, from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And what's interesting is from, well, I, hold up, not from. There's only been one man who can truly write the book of what it's like to die and come back to life. It's not the modern day books. It's not those movies. It's Lazarus. Imagine being able to ask him, what's it like to die and then to come back to life? I love that we don't have that account. He didn't write that book. That's not been recorded because I don't think that's something that God wants us, us to necessarily know or whether, I, I don't know what that experience was like, but imagine being able to hear and see and experience the fact that like, Lazarus, you were dead in the grave for four days. What happened? Where did you go? What, it, what is it like to die? Oh, and what's it like to come back to life? Was it just a long sleep? Did you see something? Was there a bright light? Was there, I don't know, what's it like? And, and, and yet they want to come to Lazarus to experience this and look at the rejection of the Pharisees. They're so incensed by Jesus' presence. They're so angry that he's drawing this crowd, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, this plot to kill Jesus where the chief priest at the end of himself, he gets to the point and goes, listen, it's better for one guy to die than for the whole nation to die. We've got to put a stop to this. So we are just going to kill Jesus. That was when he was put on trial. They decided this dude has to die. Well, now at the beginning of what we're going to see is the Passover. There's another crowd coming to Lazarus and Jesus because they just want to get close to this guy. And the chief priests are desperate for Jesus to go away because the darkness hates the light. 
They reject him at all costs. You know what is fascinating, going back to the way that we've handled this, des- this desperateness on our own soul. Think about how our, our society handles our inabilities, our weaknesses. Culture has made it its aim to remove all presence of God from this world. Culture has gone after the fact that believing in one true God, the creator of heaven and earth, is foolishness. It's gone after the fact of saying that sin doesn't exist. There is no sin. It's this postmodern, your truth can be my truth, but make sure that your truth doesn't contradict my truth, or rather, uh, you know, uh, uh, reject my truth. It's this idea that we've removed all presence of God in sin. We've rejected God, desperately so. And yet, anxiety and depression and longings are still there. There's no hope for it. We all feel that aching in our soul that something is wrong, something is missing, something has to be more. And again, we've tried to apply all of these secondary self-sufficient ways in order to uh, appease that of through um, you know, entertainment or through technology or through expansion, whatever that is. And yet all of us can't satisfy that aching in our soul. Here, these Pharisees are, are knowing there's this desperateness. This message has to die because we cannot stand the light. And yet they reject him. We also see in this passage is that we see it the rejection of Christ juxtaposed to the devotion of Christ. Because if the chief priests see the light and want to reject him, which I should say something that Jesus warns us about. We're gonna get to this, but John 15. Jesus has this whole section in John 15 where he warns his disciples, oh, by the way, if they hated me and they wanna kill me, they're gonna wanna kill you as well. I'm gonna save all of that for John 15 in a couple of months. I don't know how long it's gonna be till we get to John 15 because there's a lot of great stuff between here and John 15. But Jesus warns about this, but if we can see the desperateness of the religious leaders juxtaposed to the desperate devotion of Jesus' followers. And so this leads us to this text, 12 through 19, this triumphal entry. This text is normally read and looked at on Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the Sunday that we celebrate a week before Easter. The reason that we read it on Palm Sunday is because this is exactly John 12, 12, is one week prior to Jesus' resurrection. Now, we're going to get to that at the end of John. There's many chapters to go, and there's going to be many months of sermons in between here and there. But I just want to acknowledge how much of the gospel of John is focused towards this one reality. I mean, there are chapters and stories. John knows he has brought us to this point so that he can reveal to us all this information that happens in the Passover week. But here on Palm Sunday, we see a desperate devotion of Jesus' followers. I'm going to read a couple of verses and then we'll jump into it. It says this, On the next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a donkey, a young donkey, and sat on it just as it is written, 
Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Just before we go any further, we have to offer some comparisons with this passage. This is one of these texts that's found in every single one of the Gospels. And that's important to note because that means that when the gospel writers are telling their story, when they are crafting their message to their individual readers, they get down to this. And this story was so prominent, so important, every single one of them offered this Palm Sunday entrance into Jerusalem. But they offered it to us with some differences. First, I just want to compare how Jesus enters into Jerusalem this Passover compared to the last time that he entered into a feast. This is the Feast of Booths back in John 7. Uh, You can, I guess, turn there. We're going to kind of look at that. But just think about John 7 for a moment. The Feast of Booths. We see Jesus's brothers at the Feast of Booths mocking Jesus because it's a feast. Everyone's supposed to go up up, up, up to Jerusalem to go to this feast. Here's what it says. After his brothers went about in Galilee, he would not go up in Judah because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judah, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Again, mocking tone, like, hey, you're, you're here to make a name for yourself. Well, go make a name for yourself. For no one works in secret if he, if he seeks to be known openly. If you, only, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Essentially saying, hey, there's a feast going on. You want to make a name for yourself. You're trying to proclaim this to as many people as possible. You should go to this feast. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my time has not yet come. John 7 is a feast. There's a gathering in Jerusalem, just like we see in John 12 with this feast of Passover. In John 7, we see that the crowds were looking for him. We can also see that the religious leaders wanted to kill him. They wanted to stop this in John 7, just like they want to stop this in John 12. We can see that, the pub, that, this, that, that this feast was, was, was public and that people were looking for him at all points. All the circumstances are the same, but notice how Jesus handles it. In chapter 7, he says, my time has not yet come. We're going to see that he actually goes up silently. And then in the time that we see he goes into the temple, he sneaks into Jerusalem and he starts to teach. He made the same trip that he's making now. He's being asked the same questions by the crowds that he's making now in John 12. The religious leaders even wanted to kill him in the same way that they want to, and we can argue they want to kill him even more now. But notice how John 12 goes. It says, Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. We can see from this text that Jesus is not sneaking in. Jesus is not hiding from the crowds. Jesus is not trying to diminish his name. Jesus is proclaiming that he is there. We can see this more when we look at the other comparisons uh, 
in the other gospels. As I said, this section is in all of the other gospels. So we can, we can get a, a greater detail when we compare this account in John 12 with what we see in the other gospels. Like in Matthew 21, here's what it says. It, Jesus commands him. He says, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Luke even adds even more to that description and says that on which no one has ever sat. And so here is an unbroken uh, uh, donkey colt and Jesus saying, go find it. In Mark 11, we have an even greater description of the way this went down, the way this colt was, was um, uh, constricted into service. It says this, if anyone says to you, this is Mark 11, if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need for it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and they found a colt tied at the door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing by saying to them, what are you doing untying your colt? Essentially, why are you stealing this car? You're not supposed to take it. And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. Notice. Jesus is the one that is giving all of these commands. Hey, disciples, we're about to enter Jerusalem and I need an appropriate ride. I need, I'm not just gonna walk in. I am going to be presented on a colt. We're gonna get to that in a minute of why. But he's the one that is orchestrating this entrance. Very different from chapter seven. Instead of sneaking in, he's saying, no, we are going to have a celebration. And, and the Jews understood this because they didn't need to be told what to do as Jesus comes riding in on this donkey. It said, so they took branches of palm trees and they went out to him and crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. These individuals as compared to the Pharisees, these individuals in their desperate state, when they saw Jesus coming, riding on that colt, on that donkey, came out to him and praised his name, worshiped him for the king that he is, and worshiped him by laying down palm trees and their coats. Now you could ask the question, where the palm trees come from? Actually, if you look in the Old Testament to see where palm branches are used for uh, ceremonies of celebration, you're not gonna see it. And it's because these palm branches, uh, the, the, the way in which this celebration came about was actually created in the intertestamental period. We've talked about this before in this uh, passage, but during the Maccabean revolt, which is again in the middle of uh, Malachi and Matthew 1, those 430 years of silence, there was a time when the Jews, because they just keep doing this and, and the Lord always saves them, but th the Jews were going to be destroyed and they were going to be destroyed because somebody hated the Jews. And, and what was uh, listed down from the uh, Roman Empire at the time was you were allowed to kill all the Jews. Well, at that time in this Maccabean revolt, the Maccabeans rose up and said, wait a second, why is it that we can all of a sudden have this death sentence put upon us? And what was uh, then written into law was that the Jews could fight back. And that is when Maccabeus was the, uh, the ruler to... Um, lead this revolt. Well, during that time, at the end, when uh, again, out of this desperate state, the, day, the days following this revolt, and they were rejoicing that they were alive, they celebrated Maccabeus by putting down palm 
branches and their coats on the ground. So at this time, when the Jews were told to celebrate, when the Jews were told that their king had arrived, when it, it, is, a, it is a victory parade, they automatically knew palm trees go with that. Even so much it was on their coins at that time. So when they put their palm trees down, they were celebrating, my savior has arrived. My king is here. But why cry Hosanna? Well, to them, it was second nature. Because Hosanna was a word that would be on their minds during this feast. Hosanna was a word that would be said in their homes. Hosanna was a word that immediately during the Passover, they would be drawn to because Hosanna comes from Psalm 118. Now, just for a moment, there's a, a batch of Psalms between Psalm 113 and Psalm 118 that are called the Psalms of Hallel. And even more specific, they're called the Egyptian Psalms of Hallel. The reason they're called that is because it is a group of Psalms that focuses on and reminds the nation of Israel of the hope that Israel has because God has saved them. And Psalm 118 is what lists this Hosanna Psalm. It's a Psalm that focuses on deliverance. It's a Psalm that's associated with the Passover. In fact, this is a cool thing, probably when Jesus and his disciples got done with their upper room supper, they left singing these psalms. Psalm 118 would have been sung. It, it was recited at these Jewish feasts. So what I want to do this morning is I actually want to read all of Psalm 118. And I want you to think back to that desperate situation that I had you think about at the beginning of the sermon. Because again, this is the Egyptian Hallel. Think about the desperateness that the nation of Israel went through during the Egyptian captivity and during God's deliverance from the Egyptian captivity. I mean, Israel is in Egypt and they're saying all is lost. God has forgotten about us. We've been here for, for 430 years and we are dying. They thought there's no, nothing can come in and can conquer the Egyptian army and Pharaoh. He is all powerful. They thought they were at the end of themselves. And then what do we see? God using Moses, comes in and saves them. But their desperateness isn't over because, again, think about the Egyptian wilderness wandering, that already not yet. They're saved from slavery out of Egypt, but they're still not in the promised land. Think about all of the desperate stops along the way, all those times, three days after they walk through the Red Sea, they get to the point and go, there's no water to drink. That's a desperate situation. We're gonna die. We need water. God, why have you brought us out here to die? This is what we can see in Exodus 16, 17, and 18. And then they go a little further and go, okay, we have water now, but we have no food. God, we're going to die. And then we can see manna come down from heaven. And then they go a little further. And once again, there's no water. And they go, really? You're, you're going to allow us to die here? Because the last two times Jesus hasn't saved them. And there's all this desperate situation throughout this journey. Will these Psalms of Hillel bring them back to that state? And what they bring them back to is reminding them that our, our life is a constant state of desperateness, but God is constantly faithful. So just hear Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say 
his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. It's easy to say that, right, in those good days? It's easy to say that when there's food on your table and there's water in your faucet, when you have no need. But it's not written then. No, it's, it's written in the, in the middle of the wilderness. Out of my distress, I called the Lord. Out of my desperateness, I called the Lord. And the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side and I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph over those who hate me. I'm sure they're thinking back to sitting at the edge of the Red Sea, looking at Pharaoh's army coming upon them, looking at the Red Sea on the side and again going, oh my goodness, God saved us so that we could just have a mass grave out in the wilderness. Who, who's going to save me? And yet all nations surround me. And in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me. Surrounded me on every side. And in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees and they went out like a fire among the thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I, am, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the Lord that this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifices with cords up in, in the horns of the altar. For you are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God and I exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Now you might say, Ryan, Hosanna didn't come up in that verse. Why'd you read that? I'm looking for Hosanna, but it's not there. Well, you're right. Because Hosanna is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew and Aramaic, and Aramaic imperative addressed to God when it says save. When they're referencing Hosanna, they're referencing two things from this verse. When it says, the Lord is my strength and my song, he has become my salvation. They are declaring, he has become my Hosanna. When it says, I thank you for you have answered me and you have become my salvation, my Hosanna, and the stone that the builder rejected has become my cornerstone. This is what they're talking about. So let's lay over Psalm 18 and that very clear, very um, directed, desperate cry for the Lord, understanding that you alone are my hope and my satisfaction and my salvation over these people when Jesus walks into Jerusalem. They have lived a life that they have desperately tried to live up to the religious leader standing. 
They've sat there and they have tried to check every box that they have put in front of them. They've tried to come to every feast. They've tried to have every sacrifice. They've tried to have every prayer. They've tried to do everything right. But they know that their lives are broken. Even after trying to do everything right, they know they've come to the end of themselves and they've said, I am still guilty because we can try our best. But in our heart of hearts, in the quietest of our moments, we know we're desperate for something else. And Jesus walks in. And he walks in riding on this donkey and the people know if he saved Lazarus, he can save me. And they cry out for Hosanna. Salvation has come. God saves. This is what it means here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Quoting from Psalm 118. And they add something. Even the king of Israel. Think back to two weeks ago during the plot of Jesus. The plot to kill Jesus. What were the chief priests concerned about? They're concerned about losing their nation and their place. And why would they lose their nation and place? Because they only had their position uh, at the um, behest of the Roman government. Caesar was like, sure, you can have some sort of power, but make sure that you know that I'm king. They knew that if anyone was going to come into Israel and say that I'm the true king of Israel, that was cause for losing their authority. Here you have the people, the everyday desperate people looking at Christ and saying, he is the king of Israel. And Jesus knows that, which is why he enters in on a young donkey. As it says, Jesus found a donkey. We, we read those other comparisons from the other gospels and he sat on it. And he sat on it riding in just as it is written, fear not daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. Now, why a donkey? Why did Jesus choose a donkey for this? First, we have to recognize Jesus is taking this position on. He is taking this authority and this, and this glory on. He's the one that says, I need a donkey. But why a donkey? Now, some people have said it's because he wants a humble, lowly steed. That's not actually the answer. Uh, eventually, the horse will become the, symbolic military, the, the symbol of military power. But at this stage, mules and donkeys were actually that symbol of royalty. A, a mule is known for its sure-footedness. A donkey is known for its consistent and faithful temperament. We can see throughout even the Old Testament where kings ride in on donkeys. As one commentator put it, the donkey is, so to speak, the Mercedes-Benz or the Rolls-Royce of the biblical world. So Jesus isn't picking this donkey because he has this low, humble, uh, you know, odd animal that we see it today. I mean, imagine if, if somebody walks in and goes, he's the king, he's riding a donkey. Everyone's like, really? He couldn't afford a horse? It's not that. It's this Jesus is taking the full weight, the full authority of a king on himself. Caesar would have ridden a donkey. Imagine that. Imagine that symbol. Imagine that proclamation, Hosanna, God saves. Jesus is the king of Israel and he's riding on this donkey. And we see this text here in verse 15. It's a, it's a um, quote from Zechariah 9, 9. Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your, your king is coming, seated, sitting 
on a donkey's colt. Your salvation has come today. To their ears, they are proclaiming the full weight of blessing and glory on Christ. Now, Zechariah 9, 9 is, is a judgment, or not, chapter 9 is a judgment of Israel's enemies. They've been overthrown. This is a minor prophet in the middle um, of the um, captivity era. The, the, the Assyrians and the Babylonians have come in and just laid waste to them. And Zechariah is proclaiming that God is going to judge Israel's enemies and that God is going to redeem and to reconcile Israel out of their desperate state. And he's going to do that through a king riding a donkey. What I love about this passage is that the disciples didn't get it then. I love that this triumphal entry, they're seeing all this. They're like, okay, we're getting him a donkey. Okay, they're saying Hosanna. Okay, they're using palm branches. Okay, he's quoting from Zechariah 9.9. Okay, we can see all of these other descriptions of Psalm 118. But it even says, John even says in this text, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, they then remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. His disciples saw this. They lived through it. They were experiencing all this. I'm sure they were overjoyed. Think about Peter. How did Peter want Jesus? What did Peter want Jesus to do? He wanted him to come in and sit on Rome's throne. He wanted, he wanted Jesus to come in and rid uh, Israel from Rome's uh, power and, 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 and rule here. I'm sure when Jesus is riding in on this Passover, at this Passover on this colt, they're thinking, finally, our desperateness is over. Finally, God is going to take the power and authority that he has. Finally, Christ is going to come in and sit on the throne. And five days later, Think about Peter's thoughts. Five days later, they're looking at their savior on a cross die. Five days later, Peter's like, but he rode in on a donkey. He took the power that was rightfully his. And it wasn't until, again, he was glorified. I can imagine as they're sitting down in some room and they're asking themselves, what just happened to us? over the last three and a half years. And they're searching the scriptures and the Old Testament passages of like, okay, I, I know that God promised the Messiah and I know that Christ was the Messiah. How did this work? And somebody got to Zechariah 9, 9 and went, hey guys, that's why we picked the donkey because God saves. Verse 17, the crowd that had been there with him when he called when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the grave, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done these signs. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. We're back to that desperateness. That desperateness of his voice has to be stopped. Well, this story is going to continue. We've got a lot of other great stops to go. But I want to return to that desperateness that we've covered. I know that the world is fantastic at offering secondary remedies to that desperateness. They've been doing it from the very beginning. This was the lie in the garden. You don't need God. You can do it yourself. And we have spent so many we spent thousands of years perfecting that lie that we can get past our need for God. 
but that aching in our soul, as the reformers called it, that misery of mankind. Regardless of what you believe and who you are and where you grew up, that thing, that aching in your soul of something is not right is only satisfied by one person, and that is Christ. I just want to offer that as a reminder to us all today. We walk out of these doors, and the world is, has perfected its appeal that they have what we need. It's in the devices that are in our hand. It's the billboards that we see. It's the promises of the job. It's the promises of the fun. It's everything. They perfected it. And we can so get caught up in that. Get caught up in what we need is something other than Christ. And yet what the Bible declares, what, what, what the gospel proclaims is that we have that desperateness. That desperateness never goes away. But the remedy to it is Christ and Christ alone. As we turn our attention towards communion today, it's the message that we have every single week. That the life that we need, that the death that was required because of our sin is found not in these hands, not in your hands, but in the perfect life of Christ. Imagine that. Christ came into a broken and desperate world and said, I got this. You can't do it, but I can and offers to needy sinners who literally can't do anything. I think one of the issues that we have, even as believers, we don't actually see how desperate we truly are. Because I want to hide my desperateness for sure. I don't want you to see how desperate I am. I know that you guys don't want me to see how desperate you are. We try to hide this. And in that hiding, we can start to add on and we can start to lie to ourselves that I don't need Christ that bad. Or I don't need Christ today. Or I don't need Christ as much today as I did yesterday or the day before. And yet what the gospel declares to us and what Christ declares to us is he alone is sufficient to satisfy our deepest needs. So if you're here today and you are a believer, I would in, in invite you to take this table together with us as we celebrate that. If you're not a believer though, maybe somebody brought you to church, maybe this is your first time here, first time hearing this, maybe you resonate with that desperateness that's in your soul, and, and, but you're saying, I'm not so sure I know about this Christ. Maybe you're still trying to satisfy it with a host of other second-class things, I would ask that you let this table pass you by. We don't want it to confuse you. We don't want you to think taking it is a part of receiving the salvation that we so desperately need. But what I would ask is that you come find me afterwards because I'm desperate too. And I can declare to you that the only thing that satisfies that desperateness in our souls is Christ. Let's pray. We can take this table together. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you, for, thank you for not leaving us in our, in our worthlessness. Thank you for being honest with us about our desperate need. Thank you for not asking us to be better, try harder, do more, knowing that we can't. Lord, thank you for sending Christ, who is perfect, who did everything that we could possibly need, and thank you that we get to run to him, that we get to look to him, that we can proclaim today 
as these believers did 2,000 years ago. Hosanna. Blessed is the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. I thank you for this blessing in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.